0: Stability in one's home is essential to liberty, freedom, and dignity. As famed English legal scholar and jurist William Blackstone wrote, It would be unjust and contrary to the law of nature to drive by force a person who is in occupation of any determined spot of land. For that reason, nearly every state in the United States has laws that protect tenants from eviction without due process of law. Self-help evictions where landlords recover their land by the use of force and in the absence of a court order are forbidden throughout the country. Yet self-help evictions persist. Millions of formal eviction cases are filed each year. It's estimated that millions more informal evictions occur as well. But because those evicted informally or by legally suspect means are often the most marginalized and vulnerable of residents, it's unclear how many of these informal evictions rely on self-help tactics, like intimidation, changing locks, and shutting off utilities. The numbers are believed to be staggering. One very public recent self-help eviction case involved Richard and Bellamira Solis and their young children in Brooklyn, New York. The Solises rented a basement apartment with a shared kitchen and bathroom space for several years. In February 2014, the building owners, the Aguilars, sought to oust the Solis family from the property in order to rehab the building. According to the Solises, the landlord's efforts included shutting off utilities, conducting demolition work in shared spaces, sending legally suspect eviction notices, making false reports to the Division of Child Services, and ultimately removing the Solis' personal belongings from the apartment and leaving them on the curb. The Solaces filed suit against the landlord for wrongful eviction and a host of other claims. What followed was a 10-year legal saga. After the close of discovery in the case, the landlords moved to dismiss the case, arguing, among other things, that the Solaces did not have a lease and were not wrongfully evicted. The Kings County Supreme Court denied the motion, but the landlords appealed. Would the New York Appellate Division back the landlord's legal claims? Or would it provide some of society's most vulnerable persons a right to have their day in court? This is Solis versus Aguilar. Welcome to Legal Judgments, where we tackle litigation and trial strategy by analyzing and talking about real legal cases. I'm Bob Stetson, a Boston-based trial lawyer at Bernkopf. Today, we're looking at a self-help eviction case, the kind of case that often slips through the cracks because it ordinarily involves parties that lack the interest or means to mount a legal challenge. But Paul Edelstein didn't let that happen here. He's a partner at the Brooklyn law firm, the Edelsteins, Fagenberg, and Brown. Paul represented the solaces in the case. Thanks
1: for joining, Paul, and welcome. Thanks for having me. You made my case sound incredibly regal, like it, as if it, it existed from hundreds of years back. It's that that's fantastic. I wish you could have opened for us. Well, we'll we'll get to that because I think you had a pretty high
0: impact uh, opening as well, which we'll talk about. But. Uh, Before we go there, you know, we we talked a little bit about the appeal. You won the appeal, and according to the numerous press reports on this case, you ultimately settled the case at trial for $275,000. Now, this was after you initially demanded, on behalf of your clients, of course, $2,500 when the case was first filed in 2014 and only raised the demand to $25,000 after you won the appeal. Now, I'll grant you that there were 10 years of litigation in the interim, but the question is, what changed from the time of filing, when you're making a, a $2,500 demand, to the time of settlement, in which you obtained a settlement worth 100 times more than that? So what what happened, and, and how did you accomplish such a feat?
1: They pissed me off. They got the, These defendants and their insurance carrier got us. Extremely aggravated and angry by the way they were defending the case, (laughs) that's really what it was. Although you have a a little bit of the circumstances wrong, uh, off by a little bit. We initially did demand twenty five hundred dollars when this family showed up at my doorstep with nowhere to go. Uh, My wife and I took this family in. They they in the middle of the winter and they lived with us for a couple of weeks while I tried to sort this out. So the twenty five hundred dollar demand was made, you know, just by a, a claim letter from me as a lawyer saying, hey, you know, you can't just throw people out on the street. From what you do, what what we do in Brooklyn, or the way I was brought up as a lawyer and a person, if you were a landlord and you wanted to get your tenants out uh, quicker than than the lease provided, you know, you give them some moving expenses, you give them some incentive and say, listen, I want you to get out of here, but I need the place or whatever, but I'll I'll give you a couple of bucks to to get a new place. That's what you normally would do and is the right thing to do if you're gonna break a lease and not go through the legal process. So that's where the $2,500 uh, came from. The, tw- the, the demand was raised to $25,000 after we litigated for about four years or so and survived the summary judgment motion. And I figured at that point when they lost their summary judgment motion below at the trial court level uh, that they would pay. So we, we were at an appellate conference Uh, which is what they do in New York. They try to settle the case before the appeal is perfected and heard. And it was at that conference that I said, well, now I want $25,000 because you dragged me through the mud. And these people through the mud made them testify at depositions and things like that, and you're not going to win the appeal. So now you got to pay them $25,000. That's when actually the defendants looked at us in front of an appellate division judge, and they literally said with their insurance carrier present, read my lips like a famous president, once I think it was George Bush. They said, read my lips. There will never be a penny offered in settlement on this case. That was at an appellate conference. And I'll never forget that because they've been doing this for a long time. And I, I was just, I start, I just couldn't believe it. And I said, this is the case you guys are going to take a stand on? Like, this is the, what are you, crazy? Uh, and they did. They refused to pay the $25,000 at that conference and let the case go through to an appeal. And as you said, during your Opening, which was fantastic. It's fantastic hearing somebody else talk about one of your cases like that. Uh, the appellate division at, in New York was not very happy with these defendants in this appeal, and they denied their appeal, upholding the lower court's judgment. That cleared the way to go to trial. And now, when we were at trial, you know, we we took a much more aggressive stance uh, at trial. We opened, and it never got past the first witness because the first witness was going to be the first two witnesses were going to be my wife and myself because we took these people in. We were actually witnesses to the case, to what had happened. So before they ever let me take the stand as a witness, which is obviously really unique or my wife, which I was, I really wanted to see happen uh, for a lot of reasons. uh, That's when they basically said, we'll pay almost, almost anything you want. I mean, we really were pretty aggressive at that point. So there's your, there's your settlement history.
0: Yeah, well and I guess just like uh, uh uh the first George Bush uh they did end up raising taxes or in this case the, the <laughs> settlement amount. Uh but so how did you how did you arrive at I guess I'm curious about the figure. You know, where does the tw- 275 was there like was there attorneys fees that were a component
1: of that? What what were the damages for, Paul? I mean, well, the... the you know, when you settle a case, as you probably know, as a trialer, so there there were a number of claims in this case. It obviously all stemmed from a wrongful eviction, essentially a constructive eviction. Uh, but then, you know, because of the history of the case, you know, when it started, I these people literally showed up at my house in the middle of the winter, and you know, I knew them. They they were the 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 father of this family was like my handyman, and they're they're immigrants from Nicaragua. My wife uh, knew them. My wife is an immigrant from the Dominican Republic and they spoke mostly Spanish, at least the parents did. And they, and so we knew them for a long time and we knew their, their children and their children had played with my children, been at my house, things like that. Two of the kids were, I guess, teenagers at the time, like, uh, I don't know, 12, 13. And one was like six or five. And my kids were, my old, my kids were the same age as about the, of, of the older kids or similar ages. And you know, when they showed up at the house, I couldn't quite understand what happened except that they had nowhere to go. And and it was night and it was winter and something had happened and they had garbage bags, you know, full of their stuff and things like that. You know, so obviously we took them in. And the next morning I said to the father, I said, you know, come up tomorrow morning and you'll have a cup of coffee. You explained to me what happened because he said he'd been thrown out. And I didn't, I didn't know exactly what happened except they had nowhere to go. When he When he sat at my kitchen table the next day, he had a 10-day notice to evict, which is a precursor to properly doing an eviction. Or one form of an eviction that would really be an ejectment action. Uh, so it's like two types of evictions that you could do: from a one for a tenant, one for somebody without a lease. Uh, and so they had this 10-day notice to evict. And but when I looked at it, I said, "Wait a minute! This the 10 days is not even, exp- you know, they they hadn't even given him the 10 days uh, before moving their stuff out on the street and things like that." And I'm like, "This is crazy!" And then he started telling me, you know, all these crazy stories that they had on this, broken down walls, turned off the bathroom that, you know, also sorts stuff you hear from wrongful eviction cases, which, you know, obviously I didn't like, but I'm like, all right, well, uh, don't worry. I- I- I'm going to take care of it. Send your kids to school. And this is a blue collar guy. Go to work. Don't worry about it. You can stay here until you find a new place. I'll-, I'll take care of it. You know, and I went to work and then either that day or the next day, my wife called me hysterical at work and said, uh, the division of child services is here at our house. And I said, (laughs) kill you. What? What did you do? You know, and laughing. I couldn't understand why. And she said, no, they're here for the Solis family. They're investigating an allegation against the Solis family for abusing uh, the then six year old daughter or five year old daughter. And I'm like, and I knew these people. So I didn't have to know, I didn't have to investigate any. I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. And I knew immediately that that had must have been from the landlord. Because the father had told me that they had called the police and they had all sorts of weird stuff had been going on. Well, now I got really, really mad. I said, I can't believe that. So of course, you know, we let the Division of Child Services come in the house and see the kid and see what was going on in our house. And the complaint was completely unfounded and closed. But they don't tell you who made the complaints. It's anonymous. But it was obvious that the the person that the only person that could have made the complaint was this landlord as part of their constructive eviction action. So that well, all of that really, really uh, aggravated us, and we sent a claim letter. And again, as I said before, saying, "Look, we're just give these people a couple of bucks. Like, you can't just do this to the, to people." And a lawyer called me, uh, who knew me, who knew, or knew I didn't know who he was, but he knew who I was. And he said, "Listen, I I, I got to tell you, I know who you are, and I really respect what you're doing." Because he knew that I was a you know a lawyer that handled I guess far bigger cases, and he he knew I obviously was doing this out of like a personal Feeling and a personal connection, and I said, "Okay, well, so go tell your clients to give them some money. You know, give them a couple of bucks so they could find a new apartment. You know, they're obviously out." And he said that his clients wouldn't, that they refused, uh, that uh, that that they weren't going to pay them the Solis family anything. And I said, "You know, that's not like you're going to have to." And I so talked to them again, and I gave it a couple of weeks and called the lawyer back. And and when I was rebuffed the second time, I said, "You know, well, then I'm going to sue you." Hey. You know that, that because. I'm not going to allow this to happen. And I figured once I put the case in suit and they then had to go through the expense of hiring a lawyer to defend the suit that they would just pay $2,500 or, you know, whatever, $5,000, that it would be over. But when I put the case in suit, instead of just suing for wrongful eviction, this was really your question, we sued for everything that I thought I could come up with, including defamation that they had, you know, defamed these people. By making false allegations and negligent infliction of emotional distress, and intentional infliction of emotional distress, and wrongful eviction, we threw in every, which is not uncommon, I guess, for lawyers, but we threw in every cause of action that we could possibly think of that stemmed from the conduct, and uh, you know, and uh, and and laid out the allegations that they called the police and and had alleged that the solaces had, had hit them, and the and the police had came to the house, and I had a a police report that reflected that, of course. None of that stuff ever happened, except that the police were called and showed up. Uh, and that's where the police has produced proof Oof. that they live there. I mean, cr- just crazy nonsense. But I figured, well, now they'll just come up with a couple of dollars. Uh, but they didn't. And they gave it to, ins- their, 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 to an insurance company law firm, who I also knew, you know, because I've been doing this a long time. And when those lawyers called me, you know, we said the same thing. said, all right, well, what are you, crazy? What are you doing? just get these people a couple of dollars, but they didn't. And they said, we're going to litigate this. And I said, if that's what you want to do, go right ahead. And so we litigated and it ended up being a 10 year odyssey in part because of COVID and in part because of an appeal. And unfortunately, when you're in Brooklyn where I predominantly practice, the volume of cases is much, much higher probably than any venue uh, that I could think of other than the Bronx. And it's just because of the volume of people. So uh, the case takes a long time to progress. And then once they appealed, appeals in Brooklyn take an incredibly long time as well, just because of the volume. So that's what took so long to get to trial. I guess that answered more than your, just your question. No, that's helpful. And I mean, you also touched on this, I, it,
0: this idea that there were so many opportunities that, that you gave to them to really get out for, you know, what I might consider, you know, nuisance value or, or, or something like that, you really weren't asking yeah. for very much. What, what was it about this particular, you know, I can understand, for instance, if you, you know, you're some company and and you're looking at a small claim, but, you know, maybe it, there's, there's like a slippery slope argument where, you know, if, if one of them gets through, then you're going to see a hundred of these, but it's one building, you know, it's, it's one, it's one family here. It doesn't strike me as the type of situation where you would have a, a, a slippery slope concern. So, what was it about the situation that just caused them to take this stance? If you know,
1: well, I think it was two things. I think one, the clients themselves, so the Aguilars and these guys, you know, just took a position that they didn't do anything wrong, uh, which was crazy. And I think the other thing that happened was an insurance carrier and their lawyers just got a bug up their re-rents about the case and we're just adamant that they can win in one of two ways one in a very hyper technical way that this the, the sole leases were not did not have a lease and which is true and so that were therefore were not tenants a- at all and then could be could be subject to this and they were wrong about that and you know it just sort of spiraled out of control, and then I think an insurance adjuster, real and and their law, the insurance company lawyers, really misread the case. Maybe misread our uh, perseverance and and how you know serious we were going to take the case. I do remember very early on being on the phone with a defense lawyer who said it didn't happen. You know that the solis just voluntarily had left uh, the building; that they walked out on their own. And that really, really hit me because I said, you know, I've been doing this a long time. <laughs> now I've been practicing for nearly 30 years. So I guess at that point, I, could, I probably said, I've been doing this 20 years. My God, it's incredible how long this, how long this, that, ago this was. I think it was 2013 or 2014 when they showed up at my house. I said, in this particular situation, this is the one time that I can actually say as a lawyer that you're wrong because I witnessed it. I was there. These people didn't voluntarily leave. They showed up at my house with garbage bags full of their stuff on a winter's night. So don't tell me they voluntarily left. So this was, you know, client driven, that these clients, you know, had, you know, some notion that they didn't do anything wrong. These people left, which was completely wrong. And then an insurance carrier through their defense lawyers, uh, you know, from a procedural standpoint, you know, legal standpoint, thinking we could beat this case. You know, we don't we won't have to pay. And, and then you know with all that fell by the wayside and now there's a jury selected and there's a trial judge sitting there and this jury heard the story during openings and it was obvious that they didn't like it there's no question about that and that so that's you know that's what and now at this point I'm going to say you know pay me whatever I want and that's what happened I, wa-
0: I want to go uh back to the legal issue quickly and I there's maybe a long lead into uh, my question but uh bigger picture you know housing insecurity is a, a big issue in this country you know particularly at a time when housing costs are so high inventory especially affordable housing is so low but another source of insecurity and you sort of touched on it are, are these informal housing arrangements you know where there's not a formal written lease you know you almost got like a, a quasi rooming house scenario with Shared common space, etc. And as you pointed out in your last answer, that formal characterization of the family or, or or resident, whether it's as a tenant or a licensee or something else, can be a critical issue in these types of cases. Now, you mentioned your clients did not have a formal lease. Um, I'm aware from reading some of the pleadings that they had, you know, some sort of a letter that recognized their, you know. Uh, Relationship to the property, but um, you said with confidence that that the carrier and the defense attorneys were simply wrong on this sort of technical legal defense. Tell tell me how you got there and how you addressed that from a, a legal or factual perspective in this litigation.
1: Well, I got there because I had a a, a really really brilliant then young associate. Who had been working with me since he was 15 years, old. and when this case started to proceed through discovery, which shocked me, you know that they were going to depose everybody. I said, you know what, I'm not, I'm, I'm not getting involved in this nonsense because it's ridiculous. Uh, question. I, I sat in on the first deposition and said, I can't believe they're wasting time and money. So I handed it to an associate who's now a partner of mine. His name is Arthur Blanker. and he's the one that ended up opening, giving the opening statement because I was a witness and I couldn't really do both. So when I gave it to Arthur and I said, just handle, handle it because they're going to pay and this is, ridiculous. let them do their depositions and it's nonsense. And that's where Arthur really explained to me, because I do not really understand, you know, I'm mostly a negligence and medical malpractice lawyer. These are not common cases for any civil lawyer like me uh, or anyone really. Um, Arthur said, you know, there is a distinction between him being a tenant and him, uh, you know, being they are on a sublease with the first floor tenant. And the distinction is important because of the method by which the landlord is then required to get these people out if he wants to. And that distinction, it's, it's very hyper-technical stuff, would, would, would deal with a, a proper eviction procedure for if you had a lease, which really they didn't, even though it was a factual question because we disputed it and said it was a factual distinction. And it's a little complex as to how that plays out, because it could have been deemed to, to, to have a lease once the first floor tenant left, and then the landlord acknowledged that he could stay for another period of time. That would have made him a tenant, a de facto tenant for another 30 days. You know, you, so you can have, you know, a lease that continues like that 30 days at a, at a time. Or he would be considered, you know, having legal status there as a subtenant of the first floor uh, tenant, and for them to get him out, they would have to do an ejectment proceeding, which is different than an eviction. Either way, they could have done the right thing to get these people out. They didn't do it the right way, no matter under either path, uh, in, in our opinion. And it was through my then young associate Arthur uh, that I got educated on that. And quite frankly, at the time, I said, I don't care. You know, I don't really care. They threw him out. I don't care which way it is. Let them raise it. And I didn't think it would happen. But then they moved to dismiss, and then they went to appeal. And so this was something we, you know, became expertise at during that time period. And certainly the client said no clue, and no regular person would have any idea. you know. They just, you know, they're there, and somebody says, give me X amount per month to do it, and you figure you're fine, and, and that you have certain rights. Either way, these people's rights were violent. Either way you look at it. And so
0: you mentioned, I mean, obviously, you spent a lot of time on this, it's a very personal case uh, for you. You've you've got an associate that's that's doing some work here, and I mean, preparing for trial is is uh, extremely labor intensive. Uh, in this case, it took ten years to resolve. Overall, you know, what what kind of um, resources that did your firm sink into this case, and how did you do it? When you know, I'm I'm fairly confident you were not getting you know, paid on an hourly basis for uh, for handling this matter?
1: No, no, we of course we would not be paid on an hourly basis, sorry. And there was never even any thought going into this about fees or anything like that. It was just, no, no, we're going to right a wrong, and that's that. And that was always our intent all the way through to the end. You know, fortunately, the, the resources that were expended were mostly manpower hours, because we didn't really need an expert witness, you know. These is where the expenses come in in these cases to hire a physician or an engineer or somebody like that. We didn't, we didn't need any of that in this case. And we didn't have to go through the expense of the appeal. Uh, you know, there's some expense, but we weren't the appellant. So when you, I know you know this, but, you know, if appeals can be incredibly expensive, but they're way more expensive if you're the loser below because then you have to reproduce the record and all this kind of stuff. So that that's a lot more expensive. The the, the, Probably the biggest expense for us was to produce our brief, because back then, it's pre-COVID, we had the the appellate division in in Brooklyn, where we were, required paper briefs. So you're you're printing expenses, you're printing like 12 copies of everything, but we didn't have to produce the record, which was very long, because they were like 10 depositions and stuff like that. So we didn't have to spend a lot out of pocket. There's definitely some expenses out of pocket. I have no idea, you know, what they were. It's definitely probably a few thousand dollars, but not like tens of thousands. Uh, resources in terms of manpower, lawyer power, there was a lot of that. But, you know, look, this is what you do. Look, every, I think everybody that does what we do, well, lawyers and even judges who were lawyers before they were judges probably start out thinking, I going into law thinking, well, I want to help somebody. I want to do the right thing. You know, we all view it when we start, I think, like TV. I, I don't think most guys go into law and be like, I'm going to make a lot of money. That's what I want to do. I think most, Lawyers start out thinking, I'm going to do some good, you know, and then maybe they end up being, you know, in corporate law or contract law or different types of fields and where they're not interacting with clients like, like I get to do. But I think everybody starts out that way. And so this case, you know, obviously fit that bill. I mean, these are people I knew. These were people that I could really empathize with, not only because I knew them, but because of my wife and her family and the neighborhood I live in. You know, I live in this neighborhood, I live where these people were evicted from this is an immigrant neighborhood, a really diverse mixed neighborhood. And I just was like, this was just not right. And, you know, my father was a lawyer, my grandfather was a lawyer. And this, you know, I was brought up to, to believe that we need to right wrongs. And that's part of what we're, we're there to do, particularly for people that can't do it on their own. And these people definitely couldn't do it on their own. And most people in their position would have no idea either what their rights are, or how, or even how to, you know, rectify it if they were wrong. They would have no clue what to do. And, and most of them end up in landlord-tenant court, not with a civil lawyer like me, fighting this in landlord-tenant court. And even there, they're outgunned, outmanned, and terrified because maybe some of them are not citizens and, you know, and they just don't know. So the thought of go, getting involved in a system is terrifying to most of these people and, and, the, and, and the door seems shut to them. So they just really don't have that access. So all of those things are playing a part for me as a lawyer here. You know, when these people come to me, and again, I, I didn't think it would, we never thought in a million years it would end up, I'd be in a podcast with you. you know, 12 years after this thing happened, somebody would be asking me questions about this. We never thought that. But it it took, kind of took on a life of its own. And we were, and I was never going to go away, ever. You just have to kill me, beat me, you know, figuratively kill us as lawyers. You know, you have to win. Or if, Once we get started, we're not going away. And that's kind of the attitude that we have all the time, but this one in particular.
0: This is just an incredible story, Paul. Where are the Salises now?
1: They are in Staten Island, and the children and the adult parents. So, so the two teenagers are now adults in their twenties, and they're really, really amazing kids who are just really found really great success both in the uh, contracting world. Uh, both got college educations and things like that, so they are in Staten Island, and I know that that they're, they're they they took the settlement money and bought a house in Staten Island that they knew they could renovate because they this is what they do for a living, and the father too. So they were all tradesmen, uh, and they bought a property and renovated it with the intention of reunifying uh, their family. In Staten Island, which is I I I know that that's what they did in terms of with with the brothers and the young daughter who's also like college age now. And last I know, Richard Solis and Bella, Bella Mira Solis, the uh, the parents, they they had an apartment in Brooklyn the entire time, but but the kids' intent when they got the money was to was to do just that. And I know they did. They bought a they bought a property in Staten Island that was like underpriced because it needed a ton of work, and they renovated it, and it was to bring them all together. So incredibly, an incredible finish to the whole story is that to some degree, by getting wrongfully evicted from this basement, horrid apartment that they were, you know, that they were all in uh, at the time, just because the parents were, you know, struggling to get by and doing everything they could to just, you know, have their kids with them, uh, that wrongful conduct in that apartment ultimately ended up with them getting a a family unit that they now live in and could probably raise their kids in and stuff like that, then they may not have been been able to do otherwise. Well, I guess they certainly could have or would have through hard work and perseverance, because that's what they were doing. But the lump sum amount of money that they were able to get from this settlement, that's where it went, which is, I guess, really appropriate, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean,
0: what an amazing postscript and Um, you know, I, I really want to, you know, thank you for obviously joining us, uh, today, Paul, but, you know, thank you for doing this hard work. I mean, it's, it's, it's the type of thing that I think, as you point out, most, most lawyers, at least most lawyers that stay in the profession, they do, they do start off with, um, you know, the sort of public interest-minded motives, you know, trying to right wrongs, um, And, you know, you really did that here. And uh, I thank you for it and for giving us lawyers a good name. And I wish you the best of luck on your future
1: endeavors. Well, I really appreciate it. Well, sometimes we deserve a good name, right? We may not always have the best reputation, but at heart, most of us really try to do the right thing. So I'm glad this one got the message out in that sense. Well, thanks again. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me.
0: That's our show. Check out the show notes for more information on today's case. Also, if you were involved in an interesting civil case or know about one that you think would be a good topic for the show, reach out to me at rstetson at That's rstetson at b-e-r-n-k-o-p-f-legal.com. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to this podcast and leave us a positive review. Follow us on Instagram at LegalJudgments on Twitter at legal underscore judgments and on LinkedIn at legal judgments podcast. And don't forget that E in judgments.